Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Well, hi there, Jeffrey. Hey, Squirrel. I'm really excited about this week because we're going to go ahead and, and uh, start a two-part series. Excellent. And who knows, like our last three-part series, it might wind up being five, but we'll see what happens. You never know. We, we're excited enough to do uh, two episodes on types of reflection. Uh, and this is really inspired, uh, in a sense, it's a follow-on uh, from our last podcast, which last week uh, we talked about the uh, article, uh, the blog article that said, you don't need to stand up. Uh, and in there, we one of the things we talked about uh, was... Uh, even though he says, okay, we're, we're doing some things radically different, including no retrospective. Uh, I remember we said, uh, well, you know, it's, it's fine if you're not doing retrospectives, you still need reflection. Mm -hmm. and, and we hypothesized that there must be some reflection going on there. He mentioned going down the pub and hanging out with his team and having lunch and things. And I, I have to believe there's some reflection happening there or they wouldn't be improving in the way he describes. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and the and reflection also, we, we quoted it as one of the uh, items from the Agile Manifesto, or particularly one of the Agile principles uh, that we had talked about, uh, which said it uh, was the last one. It said, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. And we mentioned that that doesn't say the word retrospective anywhere. It doesn't mean a particular practice of holding a thing called a retrospective. It says there should be some reflection. Right. So that's what we said last time. What, where, where are we going today? <laughs> so we, I wanted to expand. I thought it'd be good for us to expand on this idea of reflection. And uh, by reflection, we, the point here, why, why we're reflecting, we're, we're reflecting to learn. And you and I, um, when we talk about learning, I, at least I, I think it's, we both have the idea about learning that comes from Chris Argyris and action science, which is that learning is the detection and correction of error. Mm-hmm. And usually isn't much fun. <laughs> That's right. We sometimes talk about how learning is horrible because it's around detecting and correcting your mistakes. And uh, and it's generally not something that people are real happy about. Who, me? I make mistakes? <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so we're going to talk about um, some, some heuristics that might help people with their learning. And in particular, we're going to talk about two different types of learning, uh, single loop and double loop learning. Now, warning, this is jargon alert. And so therefore, we'll provide a link in the show notes about that. Um, but we're going we're gonna to go ahead and talk about these. Now, one thing it's worth saying is these are not like the good type of learning, the bad type of learning. This is all good learning. And it's probably helpful to, to, to typify it so you can know which one you're using. So our listeners can go and say, oh, I think it's time for some single loop or some double loop. And we'll explain what those things are. Exactly. And we'll start off in this podcast today will be all about single loop learning. And uh, Squirrel, I know you have a great example, one that you use frequently with people to help explain the principles, and that is the uh, the thermostat example. Sure. And of course, this isn't my example, so you'll find this in the link. Uh, it comes from Chris Argyris, but I like to describe it uh, yeah, in a particular way. Actually, it's really going to come to to its full flowering in the next episode, so you have to wait a week and, and hear the, the full description of it. But the, the single loop version, if we want to understand what single loop learning is, it's just like what a thermostat does. And a thermostat has a particular metric. It has something it's trying to improve. In a thermostat's case, it's a number, but it doesn't have to be. It could be morale of the team, or it could be customer satisfaction or something that is more qualitative. But there's, there's something that you're trying to make better. And what you do is optimize and optimize and optimize until that thing gets better. And a thermostat does a very simple job. It says, gee, it's cold in here. It's only 18 degrees. I want it to be 20. So I'm going to go and turn on the heat. 
and then it says, gee, it's got up to 19. That's good. Yeah, we're headed the right direction. Heat should still be on. Gets to 20. Gets to 21. Says, oops, too hot. Got to turn the temperature down. So turn off the heat. Turn on air conditioning if needed. And then it comes back down to 20. So a thermostat just adjusts what it's doing in reaction to uh, some kind of input. And that's where the single loop comes in. There's, there's one loop happening there. Measure where I am. Do something to improve it. Did I improve? Yes, I did. Good. Did I not improve? Okay, do something else. Uh, repeat. Yep, uh, pretty straightforward. You have a, you have the goal is clear. Your uh, your strategy is pretty clear. I have heating and cooling to work with, and my goal is to you know, stay within this range. And this is sometimes described when you talk about um, uh, mechanisms for for optimization. So if you're using a, a piece of software that might help you to optimize your um, inputs for your farm or something like that. You have some something you're trying to optimize and you're doing something a little more complex than a, a thermostat. That's sometimes called hill climbing. So I've, I've got some metric. I want to go toward higher outputs to get that metric to be better. And so I look at where I am and I say, how could I be a little bit better? Well, the best, the, the thing that could help me get a little bit better on this is to improve this bit. So I'll move up the hill. Uh, and if I keep going up the hill, eventually I'll reach the top of the hill. Yep. Usually when people are, are holding retrospectives, in my experience, they're very often doing a type of hill climbing. Or when they're troubleshooting Agile, they're doing a type of hill climbing. They're saying, um, how could we be better? Uh, how could we be more Agile? And usually they have some motivating goal behind that. A lot of times it's productivity. I think how often is that the case when you're when you're brought in by clients? All the time. So um, they're, they're usually thinking about a particular outcome they'd like, and they've, they're they having trouble getting to it, so they call me in. And when I look at what they've been trying, it's often hill climbing toward getting that outcome. And sometimes it's simply that they don't know what the mechanisms are. Where, where How could they try to go up the hill further? And they don't know about practices or ideas that would help them. I have one client right now, for example, who has set things up so unit tests are very hard for them to create, and they don't understand what unit, how unit tests would help them or what, what unit tests might look like. So I'm helping them to make a single step up the hill and create one unit test. And then when they have one unit test in their particular kind of strange setup, then they should be able to make two and five and 100. And that will be a significant increase in their testing, uh, automated testing and um, risk mitigation. What I've experienced too in the past when I've worked with different teams, they come in and they're saying, you know, how do we agile harder? You know, how, how can we be, be doing better? And it's a, a question of helping them start to understand the practices uh, and uh, start to gain skill and uh, improve uh, in applying the practices or sometimes adopting practices they don't currently have. As with my client with unit tests. Exactly. Uh, or it could be, um, have you tried stand-ups or have you tried this or that, but they have a sense of what they're trying to do and we can bring in practices. And they also have a nice way to measure it. So, so, uh, Jason Palmer from last time might say, bring in standups. That sounds terrible. According to my metric of having fewer meetings, that's the wrong direction. That's going down the hill for me. Ultimately had the goal here saying I, I what I want to have is productivity and productivity requires flow and meetings interrupt flow. Therefore, da, 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 this is straightforward. If we can get the same outcomes with uh, fewer meetings, then, you know, then I'll be more productive and we'll, that, that's what we're aiming for. Here's this, and he uses even there, the paradise of productivity. He uses it kind of a sarcastic way, but he's, he's pulling up productivity as the, what he's trying to, to optimize for. Mm-hmm. And you made a very interesting point to me before you, uh, when we were talking, you, you, you mentioned that humility was an important input 
Can you say more about that? Why do you think humility is important if you're trying to do single loop learning? Well, I think it's very important in single loop learning, and especially in the case when it comes to troubleshooting Agile. One of the failure modes I've often seen with people with Agile is they, you know, they, they kind of go through the standard phases of denial. They oh, that could never work, or uh, maybe it could work somewhere, but it wouldn't work here. Um, when actually what it is is uh, what they should be saying is, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> And unit test is a great example. Um, someone who could say, uh, oh yeah, unit tests, those could never work. I have a kind of a heuristic, which is no methodology, no practice, uh, uh, whatever it is, gets really widely known, widely cited. I'll take Scrum as an example. Um, I know that you're not a huge fan of certified Scrum masters and <laughs> Scrum by the book, but I'll say this is that my, I think it's worth saying that it's, I mean, it doesn't become as popular as Scrum is by having no value. Absolutely, and I would. I, I may not be a fan in my types of circumstances, but that doesn't mean that I think it's worthless in all circumstances. It, there's definitely lots to learn from it, and there are um, situations I've seen where it's uh, providing tremendous value. And in, and that's why I would say so. If there's some practice that that's you know widely known, or some some system methodology, uh, be it Scrum or uh, behavior driven development or uh, lean startup, you could come up with many different examples and you read it and you just think, gosh, you know, that could never work, or there's obviously no value in that. What you really should be thinking is, wow, I, I don't understand this. There's something for me to learn here. To me, that's a, that's a, a starting point to enable single loop learning it, to say, well, you know, what, what could I learn from this by, uh, working the practice by really just applying it and seeing where it leads you, you can then begin to learn, uh, uh the lessons it has to teach. And I'm reminded in this of, um, the, the, uh, phrase of shuhari, which is something that is brought into the agile lexicon, uh, in coaching, uh, I think by Alistair Coburn, it comes from Aikido, I believe. And my understanding of shuhari is as you're learning skills, uh, you start at a shoe level. That's SHU, by the way. It's not the thing you wear on your feet. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Link, link in the show notes. <laughs> um, and it's basically, you know, you might put summarize this way, do what you're told, <laughs> do what the sensei says. When he says, move your hand like this, move your hand like that. You, you don't know enough at this point to question. And that sort of has this, this humility. Let's try it and see where it, where it learns. Um, when you move up to ha level, the idea is that you've, you've, mastered the basics and now you can begin to choose among alternatives you've learned enough to say oh you know actually in our circumstance uh, uh yes now i understand the value that say scrum provides um, but in our circumstance we don't need it it's waste for us it trades off this for that and we're not interested in trading making that trade-off exactly you need to at least understand the, the trade-offs to be able to choose among alternatives and finally at, at re-level that is you've transcended technique is kind of how it lays out. Um, I had a, a, a good example from uh, a, our mutual friend, uh, Andy Parker, who he just talked to me about his experience with Aikido, where um, what they would say is if you were below back, black belt and you visited uh, another, um, uh, actually this is from Kendo, you would visit a, a, another dojo where maybe they did things slightly differently. And the sensei said, you know, do it this way. You would say, you know, hi sensei. Yes. Yes. And then do it as you were told. But if you were black belt or higher, then you might say yes and say, but then now it's your choice. You can either do as you've been instructed, or you might continue the way you were. You, you're considered to have enough experience to make that choice. So to me, this is, this is, this is where humility comes in as a, as a important step for people in their 
uh, single loop learning to say is it not working well let's make sure first that we understand the practice that we're trying to apply rather than throwing the practice under the bus so so thinking of senseis what, what's the role of a coach here so if i'm if i'm a coach and i want to help people with single loop learning what does that look like well, I, I think in, in this case of single loop learning, it's going to be about uh, bringing answers in um, and answers of the type saying, well, uh, so someone trying to, for example, to do unit testing, you can say, well, this is what unit testing looks like. You're having this problem. Here's here's some ways around it. Um, or they might you know, bring in new practices and say, oh, given what you're trying to accomplish in your circumstances, here's some things that other people have tried that have had success. Mm-hmm try one of these. Here are three to try. Maybe one of them will work for you. Tell me which one works. That, that's right. And mm-hmm. and so they, they provide that kind of uh, uh, guidance about sort of what the alternatives were, as well as being able to maybe provide feedback on critiquing what, what you're doing. In the same way that sensei was of saying, here, do it like this, and might move your arm or move your leg or do something else in similar way. Someone might say, well, stand-ups shouldn't be half an hour. They should be five minutes. Um, that's the practice that I'm bringing to you. Try some five-minute stand-ups and tell me how those work. Right, exactly. Now, I'm curious for you, uh, Scroll, since you are going into many more new situations than I am, uh, much more rapidly. What do you have? You sense kind of a pattern of how you go in and, and engage people. Do you tend to start with single loop or, or double loop? Well, there's certainly a, a, a large proportion. There, there's a common pattern where I, I do start with a single loop approach. And of course, we haven't explained double loop yet, so we'll we'll get to that example in the, in the next time. But but I have a client where uh, that's a good example of this, where I started with single loop, and and the common pattern is actually that someone is trying to do practices that will help him or her to be, to be better. I'm usually coaching an, an individual at this point. And uh, the person says, oh, gosh, I, I, I couldn't even try the new things. I, I just have so many uh, tasks. I, I couldn't even try a new thing. Squirrel, you suggested these three things. I, I can't even do any of them. And so what I will try to do then is to start with single loop actions that will just improve wherever they are. So for example, with my client who doesn't have any unit tests because their setup doesn't really allow them, I'm trying to help them get to the stage where they can even have some unit tests and determine whether those are helpful. And this particular one I have in mind is a different client where I turned up and the CTO gave me the same kind of reaction. Oh, I just have so many things I can't really help. You know, it's great that you're here, Squirrel, but I, I need to run off and put out 100 fires. And so I focused on kind of getting him more time. And the thing that became most obvious really quickly from looking around was that he had 30 direct reports. So there were 30 people in the organization. He was trying to have one-on-ones with all of them uh, in the technology group. And that was really not very scalable. It didn't really work. So the first thing we did is to get him, um, and I'll, I'll use the English pronunciation, lieutenants. In America, you'd say lieutenants. But we would get him some, some subordinates who could take on the day-to-day activities. And once we were able to just make that organizational change, it was a single loop improvement. It was hill climbing. It was, you have 30, would you like to have three? Yes, please. How could I have three? (laughs) And that suddenly gave him loads more time. And I have multiple examples like that where um, uh, freeing up more time for the person I'm helping is a good first step. And the result of that was that they were able to continue to uh, churn out features at the same rate um, and uh, even to improve somewhat because the lieutenants were able to think about problems a, a, a more in a more focused way than the CTO could with 30, each of them having roughly 10. So that meant that they were somewhat more efficient at producing the features they needed to produce. 
there was more to the story, but we'll come to that next week uh, about how we moved on from that and used the additional time to get further benefits. But starting with single loop was super helpful because they really couldn't make any progress until this guy had some more time to think. And I think that's a, a great story and a great message, and one that I would hope for for people who are listening to our podcast who are wondering how do I improve my situation. One of the, I think one of the key ideas, and one I've I've told many people before, and and you repeat it here, which I think is great. You said we well, I started with where they are, um, where are they? What's the pain they're experiencing acutely? Um, let's go with that. That also fits well, I think, with we've talked about the principle of joint design. Uh, and if you say, well, you know, what's the pain that you're experiencing that we could, I could potentially have some ideas that might help. Would you, would we, would we be willing to try something different if it helps that pain? That's usually a very good place to start. Uh, and when people are trying to make change in an organization, they're much more likely to be successful if they start with, with something like that. We're helping people with symptoms that they're uh, currently acutely feeling. We're getting near the end here now of, of what we plan to talk about with single loop learning. Um, one thing, again, I, I kind of said up front, it's not the case that single loop is is bad and double loop is good, or that single loop is for small changes and double loop is big changes. I mean, I, I think that was one of the ideas that uh, inspiration for this was that you can actually do very radical changes uh, uh, single loop. You, you described it as hill climbing. You you can climb quite quite high, <laughs> big mountains, Mount Everest, and and get to massive changes. That's right. So, for example, if that client had kept going with that approach to let's just try to get the better organization, better strategies, better um, uh, practices, that would have helped them a lot. We actually went in a different direction that we'll talk about next time. But I I could imagine that they they could have had there were lots of opportunities to be more efficient that they weren't taking because the organization was wrong some of the practices were less efficient than they could be and so on and there, there was a lot of juice in the tank for further improvement which would have made life a lot better for that client yeah and i i, I was reminded of this um quote that i think comes from ward cunningham in the very early days of agile and I, and I hope one of our listeners might be familiar with it might be able to provide a citation, which I was not able to find. Yeah, please do let us know. T tweet or email, please, because we, we looked and couldn't find it. Right. But it was something about the on the nature of um, uh, of retrospectives and uh, the idea of, of constantly changing and tweaking and tuning your practices. And it said, basically, the first year, you should do XP by the book. And this is this is the, the kind of the shoe model. You should you should be out there just doing the practices by the book to really learn them. But then by the second year, you should be making changes. You're doing XP with modifications. And by the third year, you should no longer be doing XP. And this is kind of, you should have transcended that. You should have made so many changes and so many modifications to fit your local uh, environment, your exact circumstances, your people, your skills, that it, it's no longer some off-the-shelf practice. So you can get these very radical changes from the simple single loop, you know, how can we be better? How can we be more productive? Let's keep moving this along. And I think that you can end up in the place like uh, uh, with our author last time, Jason did with his blog about you don't need stand-ups. So, you know, he said now that he's doing this experiment with very different, you know, no stand-ups and uh, no calendar-driven planning and uh, no retrospectives, and he feels their productivity is higher. And he got there, I assume, by eliminating stand-ups and then by eliminating retrospectives and so on. He he, he must have done it in, in some, uh, some sequence of steps, which brought him closer and closer to what he described as... Uh, uh, paradise of productivity. Yep, um, and so there's there's nothing about this that's that that's bad. It's all it's all very good. Uh, we do uh, want to say that there are times when you'll need would be valuable to go beyond that with double loop learning. I think particularly when you have uh, situations where um, there's many unknowns or the situation is changing uh, frequently. 
And for that, it might be something to consider double loop learning. And we might even quote Mr. Rumsfeld and say, there are unknown unknowns. When you kind of don't know what you don't know, <laughs> that's when double loop learning might be helpful. And with that teaser, we, we might close and we're not going to tell you what it is. You can look it up in the article, but uh, you can also wait till next week where we'll describe what double loop learning is all about. That's right. And hopefully that was sufficiently cryptic and people tune in to, to hear the answer to the mystery. Excellent. And of course, we'd love your questions, examples, comments. Uh, we repeat our offer to have somebody join us on the podcast if they disagree with us or think they have a different approach or would like to uh, discuss it and jointly design some different ways of working. So all of that's available with the links at troubleshootingagile.com. All right. Thanks, Squirrel. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Jeffrey.